Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast. This is season nine, episode two. We're coming to you today from Columbus, Ohio, named in 2013, the nation's most intelligent city. Wow. And with you and me here today, Alan, I can't imagine that we haven't raised that level just a little bit more. Well, I'm not so sure if we have, but our guests today certainly will raise the intelligence level. I think that is absolutely true. Looking forward to that conversation. I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, the Director of Development in the Eastern PA District of the Alliance. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Rebecca McLaughlin. Tell us a little bit about Rebecca, Alan, if you would, please. Every year, I kind of review the list of CTs, Christianity Today's Books of the Year. I don't read all of them. I just don't have time to do that. But I try to read a couple of them every year. And her book jumped off the list for me a couple of years ago because I like apologetics and I was looking for a fresh approach to that. And um, I loved her book, Confronting Christianity. Uh, She recently launched a podcast of the same thing called Confronting Christianity. I, I find her inviting and sympathetic and as she'll share passionate for helping people come to know Jesus. And I thought, man, we need somebody like her to be on our podcast. And sure enough, she said, yes, we're happy. She did. And I think you're going to love this conversation today. Uh, Get out pen and paper. You're going to need to take some notes. Might want to listen twice and tell others to listen. So grab yourself a central American roast coffee at grace note coffee roasters in Boston, which is sort of where Rebecca hangs out. Sit back, relax. Here we go. And we're pleased to welcome Rebecca McLaughlin to our Equipping You podcast today. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Yeah, very thankful for that. So uh, we like to let our listeners get to know our guests a little bit. So uh, tell us a bit about how you came to faith in Christ and how you got to the spot you're in now where you're serving the Lord in the ways that you are. I was raised in the UK in what I would call a kind of mixed Christian family. You know, when people hear I was raised in a Christian family, they sort of imagine a certain thing, which is a little bit different from what I was I was raised in. Um, my mum's family is all Catholic and my dad's family is all sort of Church of England there's a mix in both families between people who go to church because they actually believe in Jesus and people who used to go to church because that was what people did, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I the, the benefit of that actually was that I grew up um, and from an early age felt like my faith was really very much my, my faith from at least when I was about nine. I mean, I, I don't recall a time when I wouldn't have considered myself a follower of Jesus, but, but from at least when I was nine, I felt very sure that Jesus was the the one person I could truly rely on, the one person who couldn't just be here today and con- gone tomorrow. And I also felt really convinced that following Jesus wasn't something that you could just kind of keep to yourself. And so from an early age, I was trying it as best I could to share my faith with friends. I was in um, very kind of academic, quite um, hostile to Christianity in many ways, 
um, school environments for a, a long time, um, you know, right through high school and and college. And so just been having conversations for pretty much as long as I can remember with people who have really good reasons for not considering Christianity, you know, whether, whether good intellectual reasons or good ethical reasons for not even giving Christianity a hearing. And I've been trying to engage with those folks and to help them see how what seem like good reasons, actually, when you look more closely, turn out, instead of being reasons to not consider Jesus, actually turn out to be reasons to to run into Jesus' arms. So in some ways, I've been doing what I'm doing today in one form or another for as long as I can remember. In other ways, um, I I married a guy from Oklahoma um, right after finishing my PhD and in the middle of seminary in the UK. He was very keen to move back to the States. So we came here. I spent nearly a decade working with a ministry where I was engaging a lot with Christian professors uh, at leading secular universities and hearing about how their research and their life stories and faith stories sort of impacted how they think today. And after nine years of those conversations, as well as my own personal conversations, I wanted to share those insights with a broader public. So I wrote my first book, Confronting Christianity, um, after that, wanting yeah, really to share the insights of, of the experts I'd engaged with. That was four and a bit years ago. Um, my youngest child is, is four, and I wrote that book when I was pregnant with him. So I sort of always think of think of that book as Luke years old. <laughs> Makes and, sense. Luke. Um, Hey, yeah, you didn't so, want to waste that. You didn't want to waste that nine months. Come on, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I discovered in that process that I just love writing. So mm-hmm. I've kind of keep writing. Um, if other people read my books and benefit from them, great. But they keep me out of trouble. That's great. That is great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that journey that led you to writing uh, confronting Christianity. You alluded to Christian professors and leading universities. So, who is probably two or three of the most influential people on your journey. Yeah. So I live um, a short walk from MIT, which you could say is the sort of high temple of scientific uh, exploration <laughs> in this country. And a little bit of a longer walk from Harvard. You could walk to Harvard from here, but it's it's more of a trek. And one of the things I observed about Christian MIT professors in the time that I was working directly with them was that whereas there were, there were some Christian professors I worked with who you had to really kind of encourage them to talk specifically about Jesus, you know, I was helping them to speak in university contexts and to write about their faith. And there were some professors where I kind of knew I needed to like, just, you know, nudge them. Hey, you really need to talk about Jesus specifically, not just kind of God in general or faith in general, but like, let's, let's um, hone in on Jesus. MIT professors in my experience, like you couldn't shut them up about Jesus. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think of, of wonderful people like um, Ian Hutchinson, who's a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT, who is also a Brit like me became a Christian when he was an undergrad at Cambridge University, he got baptized on his, I think his 21st birthday in the uh, chapel of King's College, Cambridge, where fun fact, I was married to my husband. Um, nice. And he, you know, has been writing and speaking about his faith for, for decades now, or a woman named Rosalind Picard, who is a professor of, um, I think technically media arts and sciences, but it, it, essentially artificial intelligence at MIT. She founded a whole field of computer science called effective computing and she was raised in Georgia in a, a not very religious family and became a Christian as a teenager, having previously identified as a proud atheist. Wow. Or I think of um, a young man named Cullen Buey, who's um, also an engineering professor there, who um, became a Christian because his, I think his elder brother went to a, a football camp at Ohio State University. Um, and somehow that led to him encountering Christians and really being confronted 
with uh, his need for salvation in Jesus, and and he has become a really, you know, strong um, speaker um, for Jesus ever since. So just three examples of of, of honestly dozens um, that I could could point you to at a whole host of different universities, like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and um, Princeton and Stanford and MIT, um, who are very serious followers of Jesus. That's God. Yeah, awesome. That's neat. So confronting Christianity was Christianity today's book of the year in 2020, the year we all had more time to read than we had ever had in our lives. Uh, Good year to publish a book. It was. Uh, Since then, you've published five more books, have a couple more on the way, which is uh, quite prolific. Uh, So what, what is the specific passion behind your writing? I want people to become Christians. There you go. That's Love that's it. honestly, I, I have some dear friends who feel mostly called to help Christians in their discipleship. And I think that's super. And like, I'm, you know, that's, that's wonderful. I, I have other friends who feel mostly called to serve the poor or mostly called to fight against injustice. And I think all of these, say, I don't think as a Christian, um, any of us can sort of um, excuse ourselves from, from any of these, these calls right. on our lives in different ways. But I do think each of us probably has a, a more specific um, calling on niche or sort of role within the body. And, and truly my passion and heart's desire is for more people to become believers. Now, I'm under no illusions that non-believers mostly buy my books, but I do write mostly to non-believers in the hope that Christians will buy my books and um, give them to their non-Christian friends. Yeah. And that's what I try to do myself as well. Great. Love it. Love that passion. And that I would say that definitely comes through uh, both in your podcast, Confronting Christianity, and, and the books that I've read from you. I appreciate that passion. It comes through loud and clear. So, you know, Confronting Christianity, 12 hard questions that Christianity must address. You know, our audience is mostly pastors and other church leaders, a few international workers for our Alliance family as well. Um, what would you say are two of the most pressing questions for pastors and church leaders uh, in North America to be ready to answer for their people? There are two extremely pressing areas of concern. One is around sex, sexuality and gender, and the other is around race and justice. And unfortunately, these two kind of clusters of, of ideas have become very strongly grouped in people's minds. I sometimes, um, some, some of your, your folks may have seen yard signs, um, like, um, holding one up, but for those who are just listening one in my neighborhood, like, like these are say in this house, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there's usually a kind of collection of other, other statements that come under, under those signs. And uh, as, as Christians, I think there can be a temptation to go one of two ways with signs like that. And with the kinds of groupings of ideas that they represent, there's some Christians look at a sign like that and they think. I'm profoundly aware of the history of racial injustice in this country and, and the complicity of Christians in that tragically. Um, you know, I deeply believe that the lives of our black brothers and sisters matter. And I've been told that that first claim that black lives matter is like intrinsically tied up with the second claim that love is love and that, that same-sex marriage is, should be um, validated and, um, and allowed for Christians. And so some, some believers will take a sign like that and sort of want to hammer it into their own yard. Other Christians will take a, the opposite approach. They'll look at a sign like that. They'll say, you know, I know there are some things on this sign that Christians cannot affirm. And so I don't want to hear any of it. And, you know, as soon as somebody wants to talk to me about the history of racial injustice, or as soon as somebody wants to talk about the ways in which Christians have often acted 
unchristianly toward gay and lesbian people outside the church or towards same-sex attracted Christians within the church, you know, they, they want to close that conversation down. I think it's vital that those of us who are any kind of Christian leadership actually open our Bibles and do something much more careful than that. Because as, as firmly and clearly as the Bible points us toward love across racial difference, equality between people of different ethnic backgrounds, um, and, and, and as, as firmly as the Bible actually would condemn the history of racial violence and injustice that we've, we've seen and that Christians have often tried to justify, so clearly the Bible calls us away from same-sex sexuality and transgender identities. And so the, the reason those two ideas have got kind of tangled up in people's minds is actually because of the history of Christian sin. And we need to own that and not just say, well, it's those people out there, you know, it's the world out there and the sin out there that, that's caused this, this problem. Actually, it's significantly our sin as Christians because, you know, my non-Christian friends here can say, you know, just like you white Christians in the 60s, use your Bibles to justify um, opposition to desegregation of schools or opposition to um, marriage between a black person and a white person. So now you're using your Bibles to justify opposition to same-sex marriage or transgender identities. And, and until we recognize the first part of that statement is true, that, you know, tragically, all too many Christian leaders back in the 60s were doing precisely that, we're not going to have any moral legs to stand on today. Mm-hmm. And I think increasingly, especially the sort of rising generation who, who often care deeply about justice, and rightly so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, an instinct that, that comes to us from the pages of the scriptures. If they see in us an unwillingness to reckon with the sin of our tribes, the, you know, the sin in our churches, the sin of, in, in our past, and, and, and sadly, often in our, in our present, we're going to lose trust with them, and, and frankly, rightly, so we should. But, the, but one of the most liberating things about being a Christian is that we don't need to hold on to our own righteousness. <laughs> Um, we don't need actually to defend the kind of righteousness of our tribe or our church or denomination or you know whatever it is, because the basis of the gospel is not that we're so great. The basis of the gospel is actually we're we're such sinful people that Jesus had to die for us. Yeah. And so one of the things that I would say to Christians today, you know, there are two things that we Christians should be really good at: repenting and believing. Amen. And and, and we should be on the one hand actually quick to acknowledge and repent of the ways in which either we personally or our, our kind of our, our tribes have been complicit in, in sin and injustice. And we should be quick to and clear about believing the unpopular things the Bible says about sexuality today. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's telling it like it is. Appreciate yeah, it. We do. So we also have some Alliance international workers or missionaries who are listeners to this podcast quite a few of them in creative access countries where you know the doors would be closed to preaching the gospel because of religious le- reasons or governmental reasons or both. So uh, which of your 12 hard questions would you say are more significant on a global level? Yeah, I mean, one of them is um, the, the question of diversity, which, which will strike us a little differently if we're based in the West than if we're based in um, you know, other countries globally, but for, in many people's minds, Christianity is a, a sort of white Western religion. Now that actually isn't true. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't true from the first, you know, Jesus yeah. uh, was a Middle Eastern man. Um, and from literally day one of the church, the day of Pentecost, we pe- see people from a whole variety of different um, countries right. and, and racial backgrounds yeah. becoming Christians. It's actually also not true today 
where Christianity is not only the largest, but also the most diverse belief system in the world. Um, with you know a, a, a huge proportion of, of, of believers um, in the two-thirds world, rather than declining in the modern world, as many experts thought sort of 40 years ago, Christianity has actually really held, held its ground and looks likely to increase in the next 40 years from about 31% of the world's population, at least identifying as Christian, um, to 32%. The church in China right now is growing so fast that experts think there will very soon be more Christians in China than in America. And at least one leading expert of sociology of religion in China thinks that China could be a majority Christian country by 2060. Wow. Um, meanwhile, experts think that about 40% of Christians will be living in sub-Saharan Africa at that point. Mm -hmm. so, so we need to undermine this idea that the West somehow owns Christianity. Now, it is true that for a significant period of, of Western sort of European and, and American history, that Christianity in some sense owned the West, like that there weren't sort of serious uh, um, religious competitors to Christianity. Um, when I say serious, I don't mean, I mean, there have always, for example, been um, Jewish people in, in Europe and, and God forgive the way that Christians have um, often acted in deeply anti-Semitic ways yeah. through history. But when I, but I mean, in terms of like the, the, the large majority of people um, in the West for, for many centuries have at least nominally subscribed to Christianity. And, and a lot of Western sort of culture and art, et cetera, has been in, in one sense driven by Christianity. But just because Christianity for, for some significant period owned the West doesn't mean that the West owns Christianity. And so I think um, surfacing and listening to um, and hearing from some of our brothers and sisters um, from a whole range of different different countries is super helpful. I think recognizing the extremely ancient lineage of Christianity um, in places that we might today associate with Islam or we might today associate you know with the um, with non-Christian um, religious belief and practice is going to be helpful in terms of people not stumbling over the 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 understanding that um, Christianity is like by nature a white Western religion great I loved it love to hear that that perspective and uh, I'm glad we could you could speak to our international workers. We want them to know that we're thinking about them because they are putting mm -hmm. their lives on the line in some of the places yeah. that they are around the globe. I've read quite a few apologetic books during my lifetime. <laughs> a lot of times they're dry. Sometimes they're defensive, even caustic or sarcastic. Honestly, what I've read from you uh, and listened to you on your podcast has been inviting and sympathetic. Like, How do you prepare yourself to deal with apologetics and yet be inviting and sympathetic as you write or speak. I mean, honestly, that shouldn't be a tension. Peter says that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, but that we should do so with gentleness and respect. And, and I think you're right. Sadly, apologetics hasn't often been marked by gentleness and respect. It's often been marked by kind of aggression and, and hostility and, you know, dismissing people's mm -hmm. arguments. So I, I think it's, you know, number one, it's basic Christian ethics. Um, mm -hmm. We should love our ideological enemies. And loving somebody doesn't mean trying to misrepresent their their motives or um, diminish their arguments. And um, but loving loving somebody also doesn't mean affirming what they believe when it when we don't think that it's true. So one of the most helpful distinctions one of my professors in seminary made was he said, you know, people often say you should respect other people's beliefs. He said that's rubbish. People believe all sorts of crazy things. You should respect <laughs> other people. Yes. Um, and actually, people know if you're treating them with respect or not. And part of respecting somebody actually is recognizing that they have the ability and freedom to change what they believe. So it's mm. not ultimately respectful to a Muslim neighbor to say, well, they could never 
choose to follow Jesus because of their Muslim background. Actually, that's disrespectful to them. Mm. It's actually also not respectful to say to a Muslim neighbor, well, you know, you and I really believe the same thing. We don't. You know, there are some, not to say there's no commonality between, between Christianity and Islam, but there are fundamental, profound, and, and irreconcilable differences between what I as a Christian believe and what a, a Muslim um, friend of mine might believe, not least about Jesus. In fact, especially about Jesus. So we, we don't show respect to other people by either affirming everything they believe or, or um, thinking that they're sort of totally constrained by their cultural background or current beliefs. At the same time, we do need to be um, mindful of the ways in which we might come across as aggressive, even when we don't mean to, or the ways in which we might be trying to sort of foist our culture on somebody else in the name of foisting our faith. And a sort of interesting example, um, we're recording this not, not long before Christmas, not sure when people are going to hear it, but I was reflecting the other day on the fact that it's very common for people to celebrate Christmas around here in the West by putting up a Christmas tree. Now, there's nothing wrong with like, I, I love a Christmas tree. There's nothing wrong with Christmas trees. Per- perfectly fine. There's also nothing innately Christian about a Christmas tree. You know, they're actually very like, they're a very recent um, phenomenon. And there is like zero basis in the Bible for putting up a Christmas tree. Again, not to say it's bad. It's just like a cultural thing. Now, if a Jewish friend of mine is, is um, celebrating Hanukkah and putting up a menorah, actually, if you read John's gospel, you find that, that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, the festival of lights. So ironically, <laughs> something that our Jewish neighbors are doing, in some sense, is actually, you, you could argue, sort of more biblically warranted than what, than what we're doing, putting up a Christmas tree. And that's just like one example to say, be careful to distinguish between the things that you uh, enjoy as part of your culture. And that's totally fine. Everybody has culture. That's not a problem. Be careful to distinguish between that and your faith in Jesus. And don't think that anything that kind of labeled Christmas has anything to do with Christianity. So I think we kind of need to really need to shed our Christmas trees and our Santas and our elves and like whatever, (laughs) whatever else we've kind of accrued around Christmas if we're going to 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 seriously engage with um, friends of other religious backgrounds around the incarnation, and we need to yeah we need to be ready to do that, and often we will only see the ways in which we've sort of mixed up our culture with our faith if we're relating to believers from a different culture. Mm-hmm. So that's where the diversity of the global church can really help us. Yeah, yeah, it's good. So uh, Rebecca, what's your favorite apologetics topic to write about? And what makes it your favorite? Oh, gosh, that's like asking which of my children is my favorite. <laughs> um, <laughs> except that I only have three children and I have lots of different apologetics topics that I enjoy writing about. <laughs> um, here's, here's one. I'm not saying it's my favorite, but I think it's one that I'm increasingly convinced is important. I think we have a very impoverished understanding of singleness in the modern Western church. I think we have bought in to the idea that sex and marriage is the only place where real intimacy happens, or maybe parent-child relationships. We've sort of bought into the nuclear family as the place for real intimacy. By doing so, we've left our single brothers and sisters out in the cold. We've failed to live up to what the Bible says about church as family. And we've, we've actually um, pulled the plug on much of what makes Christian sexual ethics actually viable and, and makes sense. So, so not only have we forgotten that the gospel itself lies at the heart of the Christian conception of marriage, that it's meant to be a picture of Jesus' love for his church, 
Mm-hmm. But we, we've also forgotten what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. Um, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You know, we, we've lost sight of friendship love um, and Christian family love because we've become so fixated on romantic love. Mm. Now, it's not to say that marriage and romantic love is not a good thing. It's absolutely a good thing. But Paul, who thought so highly of Christian marriage that he said it was like a little scale model of Jesus' love for his church, also said that singleness is even better. There we Dropping go. That. that was there good. Go. I did not expect that to be the answer, but I'm really glad you gave that yep. answer. Yep. And I uh, know that'll be a big encouragement to uh, our listeners as well. So thanks for that. So one of your newest books, and I just saw one of my friends reading this the other day, actually, is Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Uh, what are you hoping to accomplish with this book? In that book, I set out to do something which I was sort of surprised hadn't been done like a thousand times before, to be honest, because it's just kind of obvious. I wanted to look at the named and unnamed women in the Gospels and to see how the stories that we read about them help illuminate who Jesus is. And the reason I kind of grouped named and unnamed women together is that actually in the Gospels, many of the characters are not named. And typically those who are, the names are given to us because the gospel author is citing eyewitnesses. We're likely all familiar with the the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and therefore they're given in the gospels as well as key eyewitnesses of his crucifixion and his burial. And so, you know, whereas looking at Jesus through the eyes of women might sound like a very kind of modern project, you know, oh, we want to look through the eyes of the marginalized. Actually, it's it's something that the gospel authors specifically invite us to do. They're, They're citing women as eyewitnesses to yeah. Jesus's um, death and burial and, and resurrection. But they also actually cite women as eyewitnesses to Jesus's life and ministry. We see that yeah. in you know, Luke's gospel at the very beginning of Jesus's life when Mary is the first person to hear that Jesus is the son of God. And then um, she and Elizabeth both prophesy about Jesus. Um, and I, I use that word advisedly, you know, Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit when she recognizes that the embryonic Jesus is her Lord. <laughs> and then Luke introduces us to um, Anna from the tribe of Asher in, in, the, in the temple and calls her a prophetess. She's actually the first, in chronological terms, the, the first uh, person the Bible explicitly recognizes as a prophet since the Old Testament. You know, before when John the Baptist is still in diapers, as it were, we, see, we meet Anna um, from the tribe of Asher, a prophetess. And then we see mm-hmm. Jesus's um, profound relationships with and conversations with women you know, ranging from the Samaritan woman at the well with whom he has his longest private recorded conversation to Mary and Martha of Bethany, um, who we meet in both Luke's gospel and in John's gospel when Jesus has that incredible conversation with Martha before he raises Lazarus from the dead and says those earth shattering words, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies will live and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So, there are so many, uh, you know, that's just a, a handful of examples, um, but times when Jesus engaged with women in ways that were quite countercultural um, to his, his time and place. And really, Jesus's life and teachings changed the trajectory of how women were seen. In an ancient world where women were not at all seen as equal to men, um, Jesus treated them as if they were. And that's actually the the, the fundamental building block for you know, that other claim that often appears on the yard signs, women's rights are human rights. Many today think that the, the founding, the sort of basic foundation, the central plank of women's rights is the right to abortion. I actually think that's profoundly wrong. The, the, the central plank of women's rights is the cross. Mm. Ooh, wow. 
Wow. That's good. That's yeah. good. I think I need to read. That's one of your books I haven't read yet. I'm excited about reading it now. <laughs> I want to read it with my wife after hearing you talk about that so we yeah. can look at that together. So I appreciate that. So you've also written a book for teens and you have a Bible study on Mark coming out that'll be available uh, by the time our listeners hear this conversation in late February, I believe is the release date for this podcast episode. So what makes it important to you to write for teens and children, and how do you shift gears to do that well? My kids are 12, 10, and 4, and the 12 and 10-year-olds, uh, they're all in public school. My, my 12 and 10-year-old daughters are encountering all the same challenges to faith that any adult in America is encountering right now. And so I, I wanted to write a book that would just be a little more accessible to, to younger readers, but would take the same questions seriously that we as as adults um, would take seriously. And um, my aim was to equip young Christians, not only with answers to themselves, but also with a resource to share with their friends. Um, I'm I'm a big believer in the the fact that we don't, you know, those of us who are raising children, we're not raising children in the hope that one day they will become disciples. We're actually aiming to raise disciples and and to walk alongside them in their discipleship from day one. And um, I'm actually continually challenged and encouraged by especially my 12-year-old's faith in the midst of a really hard school environment and the opportunities she takes to, to stand for Jesus in a, in a range of ways that are very unpopular, um, that she does so with, with love and grace and, and resilience and even in the face of, yeah, significant opposition. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to take the faith of our younger brothers and sisters seriously and give them something that doesn't kind of dumb down the arguments, but just made them a little more accessible. Love it. Yeah. Appreciate that heart. And we definitely need that. I'm constantly talking to pastors who have their children in public schools and are trying to figure out how they can navigate those conversations that you address in your books and getting it down on their level, uh, making it more accessible. I appreciate that. Last shot here. Uh, Can you give our listeners some final encouraging words for serving Jesus in a world that is less and less patient with Christian views? I think because I grew up in a, a country where, whereas Christianity might still be the majority in, in terms of, you know, it's not that there's another religious majority in the United Kingdom, but where there was a you know, pretty high degree of skepticism of serious Christian faith. It actually seems very normal to me <laughs> to be surrounded by people who not only disagree with my faith, but actually have principled reasons for objecting to it. I, I think that shift that's being felt by many of my brothers and sisters in America today can seem really disorienting. Like, you know, something's going terribly wrong when the culture around us feels less Christian. Now, I want to be careful even how I say that, because if you dial back the clock in American history, you know, imagine we dial back to the time of, of segregation. We, we might have thought that was on the surface a, a sort of Christian, a more Christian culture because there was, you know, maybe prayers being said in schools or whatever. But in actual fact, there was that's profound hostility to Christianity to segregate people along racial lines. Hmm. But that's actually, you know, people sometimes say it must be really hard to raise Christians in today's cultural environment. And I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, but honestly, I'd give me today over back when I would have had to tell my kids, you know, because you're a Christian today, you need to cross the segregation lines. So I think we need to be careful not to look back to a romanticized past. And instead, I think we need to build towards a more hopeful future. 
where where we um, as followers of Jesus pursue Christian ethics across the board, where we reckon with the realities that Jesus warned us about. You know, he said, anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be celebrated and applauded all around us. Now, that doesn't mean it's, it's not a wonderful thing when cultures are sort of suffused with Christianity and, and people have you know, less hostility to their faith. Much good comes from that. At the same time, we shouldn't be surprised when we feel like we're on the back foot or when we feel like we're misunderstood or when we feel like there's hostility towards us. Actually, that, that should be, that's the norm for Christians. And when we haven't experienced that, it's been sort of atypical. So let's not lose heart. Let's cling on to Jesus. He is absolutely the best hope, not only for us, but for our world today. Amen. That's a great way to wrap up a conversation. Fantastic. Well, Rebecca, we love the way you think and the way you communicate. You've uh, given us a lot to chew on today and challenge us. We appreciate you and appreciate your ministry and appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, brothers. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Well, Alan loved uh, what Rebecca shared with us today. Some wonderful insights. Yeah. I mean, it was even the start of the conversation was refreshing for her to share about her journey, but then to know that there are so many vibrant believers in Jesus as some of the most prestigious academic centers in America, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, to hear that and how that influenced her. It's so encouraging. It so is encouraging. She's a defender of the faith without being an offender of people. <laughs> yeah, that's not always easy. I've it certainly is. listened to a lot of apologists who were equally offending and defending at the same time. Yeah, that's true. We hope you'll join us again next time. Episode three of season nine features Jonathan Weibel, good friend of ours from State College, Pennsylvania. And the most interesting man in the Alliance, according to a previous guest, Spencer Sweeting. According to Spencer Sweeting. So uh, he'll be talking about front yard mission. You won't want to miss that. It's something that uh, all of us need to lean into for sure. So until then, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.